The passage I want to look at with you this morning is 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. John Vereen read it, so you've heard it already. What I want to do is look at this three ways. We'll start with a wide angle and sort of gradually narrow down to take a close and more detailed look at verse 16, the verse that says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I want to look at what those things are describing. But that verse actually is given to outline the main points of vulnerability that face us, where Satan aims his attacks against all of us. And so in this passage, we have a brief survey of what are the three worst pitfalls this world has to offer. Now, let me read the passage again. I think John read it from the ESV. I'm going to read it from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. Here it is. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. What that verse, that section of Scripture is telling us is that Christian warfare is a lifelong battle against three great enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil. And here you see how those three enemies work together. John is specifically writing here about the world and how we are not to love the world. But notice, when he enumerates the specifics of worldliness, what he actually lists are the sinful tendencies of our own corrupt nature, what Scripture calls the flesh. And you put this passage together with everything Scripture tells us about how the devil tempts us, and you discover that these three danger zones are the very areas where the evil one aims his fiery darts of temptation. So these are three areas of temptation that we need to concentrate on because the world and the devil attack us at these weaknesses in our own flesh. So the world and the flesh and the devil are in collusion together. And the remedy against one is the remedy against the other. And I want to start by stressing that truth because it's a point many people seem confused about. People love to blame the world or the devil when they do wrong. But the truth is there's never a time when other people or even Satan himself can lure us into sin unless our own fleshly depravity yields and cooperates with the world and the devil. James 1, verses 14 and 15 say, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And all of that put together suggests that every time we sin, it is our fault. We can't say, the devil made me do it. We might say, the devil tempted me to do it, but it's still our fault. And furthermore, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And what it means is that when Satan is successful in tempting us, invariably the reason is because we yielded. We didn't resist him. So we cannot escape escape the blame for our sin by claiming that it was Satan or the world rather than our own fleshliness that drove us to sin. The world and the flesh and the devil all work together. During one of my, I think I've told you this story before, but it bears repeating. During one of my trips to India a few years ago, I met a college student who approached me after a meeting where I taught, and he said he believed he was suffering under an intense satanic attack, and he wondered if I knew of any special methods of spiritual warfare that could help him rid his home of satanic influences. And so I asked him about the nature of the attack he was under, and he said he was finding it impossible to get along with his mother. (laughs) And he said... He said that the two of them hardly ever spoke a civil word to one another, and this was destroying the peace of their household. And he said he found it hard to study the Bible or grow spiritually as long as 
these, these tensions ruled their household, and he was hoping I would tell him how he could get Satan out of his household. And so I first asked him, what makes you think that this problem is inherently satanic? Why do you think this is the devil? And as he described it to me, it sounded much more like raw, carnal pride on his part and perhaps even his mother's, so that they were constantly saying unkind things to one another. And he, 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 he admitted that he purposely did things that he knew would annoy her. He would speak disrespectfully to her. He stated quite clearly to me that he couldn't stand her and he didn't like being around her, which sounded to me more like youthful rebellion on his part more than a satanic attack. And so I told him that. I said, you know, it sounds to me like you're just behaving in a fleshly way. I think you need to look into your own heart to find the culprit rather than blaming the devil and and thinking that there are outside influences here you can get rid of. But he insisted that I just didn't understand the issue. He said it must be satanic because the nature of his conflict with his mother was so powerful and living with her was like living with the devil. And when I raised my eyebrow at that, he, he quickly added that he couldn't help himself. The, the temptation to speak hatefully to her was so overpowering, it was as if evil forces just took over his mind and his mouth. And so I told him, you know, first of all, regardless of Satan's involvement in his home, the root sin that was causing his problems was just fleshly, carnal pride. And I also reminded him that when he sinned with his tongue, he was sinning deliberately of his own accord, so he couldn't escape his own responsibility by blaming Satan for the turmoil in his household. I told him, your sin might open the door for Satan to come in and trouble your household, but at the bottom of the day, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's your responsibility. I told him, I agreed that his trouble probably is also somewhat demonic because, after all, James 3, verse 6 says, the tongue is a fire and a very world of righteousness, unrighteousness, rather. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and it sets on fire the course of our existence, and it is set on fire by hell. And I also reminded him that according to 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is like the sin of divination and insubordination is as wicked as idolatry. And so I said, by engaging in that kind of rebellion, you're committing a sin as evil and as satanic as witchcraft. You're opening your own heart and your own life to Satan's influence, and you are the one giving Satan every opportunity to take advantage of him. And so I told him, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I said, I'm going to give you a foolproof technique for spiritual warfare that is the most powerful and most potent defense against Satan you could ever employ. And if you do what I say, if you follow these instructions, every time you are tempted to speak an unkind word to your mother, I guarantee this will solve your problem. And so that perked up his ears. And in fact, he took out a pen and a piece of paper and prepared to take notes, because I think he thought I was going to give him a long formula. And when he looked up and was looking at me expectantly waiting for the answer, I quoted James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And I said, if Satan doesn't flee, if, if he is successful in luring you into sin, it is always because your own wicked heart is agreeing with him and cooperating with him. And so you do whatever sinful thing you, he has tempted you to do because it's your choice to do that. So when that happens, instead of blaming it on influences beyond your control, you need to repent and you need to admit that your own fleshly complicity with the devil is what's underlying this problem and resist the devil rather than cooperate with him. It's as simple as that. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith. That's 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Now, you think he was satisfied with my reply? He really wasn't. 
and uh, he desperately wanted me to agree with him that his problems were completely caused by the devil and that, therefore, this was all outside of his own heart and, therefore, beyond his own control, so that I know that if I had offered to come to his house and conduct some kind of ceremonial exorcism, he would have taken me up on that immediately, but he was not prepared to admit that he was in any way culpable for the disharmony in his own home. And, you know, there's a little bit of all of us in his attitude. That's a, almost a caricature of how we respond, but we all respond like that. We'd like to believe that our struggle with sin involves mainly external enemies. We're under attack. It's the fault isn't our own. So we're willing to say Satan is to blame for our sin. We're even willing to blame the world as long as it's an external cause, as long as we don't have to take the blame on ourselves, But one of the things our text this morning reveals is that even our struggle with the world is a struggle that is fomented by inordinate desires that emanate from within ourselves. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. But listen to what it's saying, and you realize also those are things that arise from within our own flesh. You ever thought about this? Those, all of those sinful tendencies come from within us. We ourselves are always to blame when inordinate worldly affections crowd out what should be a pure love for God and the things of God. Neither the world nor the devil could ever take advantage of us if our own flesh weren't cooperating. Now, I want to approach this passage this morning with one purpose. I want to understand why it's here and what it teaches us so that we can apply this lesson in our lives, so that we can have a healthy understanding of the struggle that we wage against the world and the flesh and the devil, and so that we can avoid the pitfalls that are commonly exploited by those great enemies. And I want to start by looking at the context of our passage. Then I want to close in for a look at the whole passage, the three verses that we're looking at. And then finally, I want to home in on verse 16 and examine, and this is where we'll really do the hard work, to examine these three monumental hazards that threaten our spiritual well-being. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look at this passage through three lenses. First, we'll look at the wide-angle view. Then we'll consider this passage through a normal lens, and then we'll get out a microscope and home in on the details of verse 16. So first, look at the context of the verses surrounding this and the verses that we are concerned with. The Apostle John is writing to encourage his readers to examine their own hearts and lives, to see whether they are in the faith. That's what this whole epistle is about. Throughout 1 John, he gives them a number of tests. There's a doctrinal test, there's a moral test, there's a character test. And you see the doctrinal test, for example, in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And you see the doctrinal test again in Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So he's saying, you want to know who's a true believer and who's not? You want to know who's a, a sound teacher versus a false teacher? Look at their doctrine. Take note of what they teach, because those who deny the Christ of Scripture as well as those who deny the true gospel of justification by faith, they're not Christians. That's why we oppose so many of the popular movements that come against the church today and try to forge some type of earthly unity among all of the diverse groups that label themselves Christians. The fact is, not everyone who calls himself a believer really is, and that was true even in the apostolic era. And those who corrupt or deny the core essential truths about Christ are certainly not Christians. So, in, in fact, in his second epistle, 
Second uh, John verses 10 and 11, John writes, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, he's saying the apostolic doctrine of Christ, if they don't come with that, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. He's talking about cultists and false teachers who were traveling around spreading divisive anti-apostolic doctrine, anti-Christian doctrine. And he's saying the test of whether they are true Christians or not is a doctrinal test. Look at what they teach. And he also gives a moral test, a test of behavior. Look at 1 John 2, verses 4 through 6, where he says, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So the behavioral test then is repeated numerous times throughout the first epistle of John. Look for just one example, chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, where he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And he's talking here about our practice, talking about the habit of your life, the characteristic that defines your whole life. If your life is characterized mainly by sin and wickedness, then you're not a Christian. Your life reveals that you don't really believe. But if there's growth and progression in righteousness, then he's saying you can be confident you are born of God. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, he's righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So that's the moral test. It's a test of obedience, and you'll find similar statements throughout this epistle. This is why we reject the notion that some people who profess to be Christians but live carnal lives that are no different from unregenerate people with no true love for God, with no concern for holiness, with no pattern of obedience to the commands of God, they're not Christians. And the Apostle John says here that the one who is truly born of God cannot live life that way. And then there's a third major test, which is a test of character. This is the test of love. And the question here is, what do you love? Whom do you love? That's important evidence of whether or not you are truly born again. You see this summed up in 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. And according to the Apostle John, loving one another is also how we show our love for God. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then chapter 5 or verse 2, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. And so there are these three major tests of the reality of salvation, the test of doctrine, the test of obedience, and the test of love. And they each appear repeatedly throughout this epistle as John revisits each test several times. He he cycles through them repeatedly. In a way, the entire epistle is John, John giving his own exposition of the statement he makes in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The rest of the epistle is an exposition of that statement. That's the key statement in the epistle, and everything else he says simply expands and elucidates on the meaning of those two verses in chapter 1. Now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 7, he introduces what I have called here the test of love which was a very important issue with the Apostle Paul. You remember that he has been nicknamed the Apostle of Love, and he begins to talk about the new commandment, verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. 
Now, it may look like he's contradicting himself here, but he isn't. Verse 8, on the other hand, I am writing to you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's introducing us to this new commandment, which he says isn't really new, but it's the old commandment we've had from the beginning. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus himself says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the new commandment is about love, and it's a new commandment because it's being formally issued here as the governing principle of our lives under the new covenant of Christ. But it's also an old commandment because it subsumes every aspect of the moral law that was given under the old covenant. You remember that Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, that all of the Old Testament moral law, every principle of God's eternal moral law hinges on two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Scripture says, Romans 13, verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so here the apostle John begins to show how this principle of love is is one of the tests of the true Christian. And in fact, it is the most conspicuous mark of the genuine believer. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so John is building on that truth, which he had directly heard from the lips of Christ on the very night of his betrayal. And John writes in in 1 John 2, verses 10 and 11, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness blinded his eyes. Now, this is the new covenant, or the new commandment, rather, that he's giving to them. It's a commandment to love one another. And remember, according to 1 John 5.20, implied in the commandment to love one another is a commandment to love God as well. So he's giving them a commandment to love. And that covers verses 5 through 11. Verses 12 through 14 are a digression. Those verses are like a parenthetical side remark where John addresses his audience as fathers and young men and little children. And his point there is that no matter what stage of spiritual growth you might have reached, this same commandment governs you. This commandment to love, this is not merely the elementary starting point of the Christian faith. It sums up the duty of the most mature believer as well, so that unlike Gnosticism or some of the mystery religions, Christianity doesn't have a different set of principles for more advanced believers. There is no secret truth that you have to be initiated in after you've learned the elementary truth that you need to love one another. But that same overarching commandment governs governs everyone old men as well as young children. And, and then now in our passage, beginning in verse 15, he begins to outline the negative side of this love. We're to love God and love the brethren, but there is a kind of love that is incompatible with righteous love. And here the apostle pauses in his discourse to warn us against this dangerous false love. And this is vital because there are a lot of people who want to make the principle of love a kind of ethereal goodwill that we just strew about indiscriminately on every conceivable object. And in fact, in the culture of American Christianity, if you you include the mainstream denominational groups and everyone in our society who uses the label Christian as a self-identification, I think it's fair to say that the prevailing notion of Christian charity in society at large is an idea of love that is always benevolent, always congenial, always positive about everything. You can't be critical and be loving. And in fact, if you are critical of anything, and particularly if you're critical of what someone else is teaching religiously or what they believe, you say that that's a wrong belief, you will be accused of being intolerant and unloving. 
I hear this all the time. Years ago, when I first began to investigate and catalog the Christian resources on the Internet, it's back in the mid-90s. I was one of the first people on my block to get on the Internet. And, uh, and I made this list of links to other Christian websites. And in order to keep them all straight in my own mind, because I'd find, you know, I come back a month later and, oh, I've seen this website before, but I don't remember what I thought of it, and I kept having to do the same work over again. So I made, in order to keep all of these straight, and, and also in order to help Christians who might not be very discerning about doctrinal dangers on the Internet, I classified all of my links to other Christian resources on the web um, basically according to their doctrinal soundness. So I had a large category of links that I labeled as helpful, and then there were other categories called bad theology and really bad theology. (laughs) And then a few years later, I found out I had to add a category called really, really bad theology. (laughs) And I've annotated every link. Those are still online. You can do a search for Phil Johnson's uh, bookmarks, I think it's called, and they'll come up. They're they're all still there, and I annotated every link on those pages to explain why I categorize them as bad. And to this day, nearly every week of my life, I get email messages from people who are convinced that it's inherently unloving to label anyone else's ideas bad. You're just not supposed to do that in this postmodern realm. And they will write me to chide me for posting my disagreements with other Christians' doctrines on the web, and I don't understand how they rationalize their own criticism of me if all criticism is unloving, but (laughs) there you have it. The fact is, the love that is called for in the new commandment is not this vague, indiscriminate congeniality. Real love for the truth necessarily involves a passionate hatred for error, or as John says it here, love for the Father rules out love for this world. You can't have both. And so that's the context for this passage. It's a crucial part of all of the biblical commandments about love. This is the necessary balance for all righteous love. Every time you read a commandment in Scripture that tells us to love God and love the brethren, the converse commandment is implied here, do not love the world. And so, again, that's the context. Now consider this passage for what it says. We'll look at it with a little closer lens. We'll set aside the broad angle lens and look at, through, look at it through our normal reading glasses. So let me read the passage again. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And by the way, notice that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, these are false kinds of love that the world tries to sell us so that every sexual deviation today is being peddled to the the wide populace as love. It's not wrong to love anybody, and that's why we're supposed to accept people's sexual perversions. And the lust of the flesh, it's just an expression of love. And the pride of life, that's self-love, which has also been recategorized as a good thing in our generation. False kinds of love, and Scripture is clearly telling us, don't. And now, some people imagine that there's a difficulty between this verse and another passage that will be very familiar to you, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How is it that God loved the world, but he commands us not to? Now, you shouldn't be confused by this. This is a classic example of how words that are used in one biblical context might mean something completely different from the way the same words are used in a different context, even by the same biblical author. And so the context has to determine 
what the words mean in any given point. It's the same John who wrote this epistle, our text, is the guy who penned the gospel who bears his name. And if you compare John 3.16 and John, or 1 John 2.15 in the Greek text, you will discover that he uses the same Greek noun for the word world, cosmos in the Greek, both here and in John 3.16. And it's also the same Greek verb for the word love, both here and in John 3.16, agapeo in the Greek, love the world. God so loved the world, but don't you love the world? And if you use the method some people use, you might be tempted to conclude that these verses teach that it's okay for God to love the world, but not for us. But again, the context is the key to the meaning both here and in John 3.16. And the context shows that between John 3.16 and 1 John 2.15, John, the apostle, is using the word cosmos, world, to mean two distinctly different things. And he also uses the verb agapeo to mean two distinctly different things. Actually, cosmos, the world, can refer to many different things. It can mean this physical world, the planet Earth, the material part of God's creation, or it can mean the world of people, the human race in general terms. And in fact, in John 3.16, the word cosmos does speak of people. It's talking about the world of humanity, the human world. But here in 1 John, we're told not to love the world. Does that mean we're not to love people? Obviously not. In fact, Matthew 5.44, Jesus commands us to love even our enemies. So this cannot mean that we're forbidden to love the world of people. Does it mean we're not to love the world of creation? We have to answer no to that as well, because 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, We're not supposed to despise what God has created. He gave it to us to enjoy it. So what can this mean, don't love the world? Well, notice right here in 1 John 2, he carefully defines what he means by the word cosmos in this context. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, these are the things that are not from the Father, but from the world. He's describing in this context the world of evil the order of things that are ruled by Satan that stand in opposition to God. It's not the same world that he speaks of in John 3.16. That was the world of people which we're commanded to love. This is the world of evil which we are forbidden to love. We employ English words like this all the time. We speak of the wide, wide world of sports. The world of sports, that's not a separate planet, you know. Maybe news to some of you, but... It's not. It's that dominion of this world where athletic competition rules. It's an organized system. We speak of the world of finance or the world of entertainment the same way. So the word cosmos speaks of one thing in John 3.16 and speaks of something entirely different here. This, our text, is speaking of the world of evil, and it's clear because of how he defines it. He's talking about that system that is governed by Satan, who in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, is called the God of this age, and also 1 John 5, 19, where John writes, the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. This is Satan's domain. That's what we're not to love. That wicked world system that contains everything evil and everything temporal about this world. We're not supposed to set our affections on that stuff. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And in 1 John 2.16, John is saying that this evil system that governs this earthly world is characterized by lust and pride, false notions of love, and therefore it's not worthy of our affection. Now look at the other word, agapeo, the the word translated love. In John 3.16, that speaks of a compassionate love for fallen humanity. God loved the world of people so much that he sent his son to die to redeem a remnant through whom he would perpetuate the human race throughout eternity. That speaks of a compassionate and redemptive love so that the good of others is the object of that love. But in 1 John 2.15, the word agapeo means something entirely different. 
It's speaking of a selfish affection, an inordinate attachment that grows out of sinful and fleshly appetites, which he names in verse 16. And so once you understand the context, it eliminates the appearance of conflict between this verse and John 3.16. So I hope you get that. And now I want to point out why John says we should not love the world of evil. He gives three reasons. And the first is verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's saying love for this world is incompatible with love for God and the love of God, that meaning God's love that is shed abroad in our hearts. He's actually echoing what James says in James 4 verse 4, where James very harshly says, you adulteresses, you do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. And in Luke 16, 13, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, so either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't love God and the system of evil that opposes him. So that's reason number one. Love for this world is incompatible with love for God. Here's a second reason, verse 16. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, that might seem like an obvious point, and I don't want to belabor it, but I can't just pass over it because every now and then I meet some zealous young hyper-Calvinist who wants to argue that God's sovereignty, as absolute sovereignty over the affairs of this world, mean that He is even the source and the creator of all the evil in this world. This verse clearly teaches otherwise. Evil is not from God. It emanates from a world that opposes Him. It's true that God is sovereign over evildoers. It's true that He circumscribes the limits to which they can go with their evil. It's even true that God sometimes uses their evil for His good purposes. And it's also true that evil was part of his original plan and eternal decree for all of creation. This was not something that crept in and caught God off guard or took him by surprise. But still, God is neither the source nor the author of evil. And Scripture's clear about that. Evil is not a created thing. I've said this before. I hope you get it. Evil isn't something that was created. It's not, a, it's not an entity of being. It's, it's a defect that is owing to sin in some, something or some character or creature that God created to be perfect. And Scripture is very clear about this because when God had finished all of creation, He looked at everything He made and He pronounced it very good. It's Genesis 1.31, meaning there was no sin. There was nothing evil or wrong in anything that God had created. Everything He made was good. But it was later marred by the sin of His creatures. And the source of that sin, that defect, is not God. So that the onset of evil was not an act of creation. It was an act of destruction. And God is in no sense the source or the efficient cause of it. These roots of all evil, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, are not from the Father. They are from the world. They pertain to the world. They belong to the evil system. They are in no way related to or derived by God. And don't ever press your understanding of God's sovereignty to the point where you make God the author or the approver or the efficient cause of evil. I know that there are some who have flirted with blasphemous notions like that, but God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's 1 John 1, 5. And James 1, 13, God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. God is not the effectual cause of evil. He, the blame for everything that is bad rightfully goes to the people and the powers of this world, the agents who actually do the evil, and that is precisely why we are not to love the world. Because it's not, these evil things are not from the Father, they're from the world. Here's a third reason we're not to love the world, verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And the point he's making here is that this world, all of it, together, especially with all of the evil that is in it, is temporary. It's passing away. 
And we're not to set our affections on such a temporary object. If you attach your affections to temporary things, you yourself will be destroyed in the judgment of those evil things that you love. Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's Mark 8, 36. This world is temporary. It's transient. It's passing away. It's measly compensation to receive in exchange for your eternal soul. If you could gain the whole world and everything in it, it wouldn't be enough to make up for the loss of your soul. In fact, wouldn't it be tragic to spend your whole life pursuing the world, even if you could gain the whole world, even if you gained every material and worldly thing you ever sought, and then at the end you discover that everything you spent your lifetime pursuing is simply temporary. It's not eternal. You discover only after it's too late that you have forfeited a host of eternal blessings for something you could never keep anyway. That will be the sad discovery of multitudes when they stand before the throne of judgment. And that's a broad overview of the sense of this passage. So now we're ready to take out a microscope and take a closer look at verse 16. Let's see how the apostle characterizes all that is in the world. And I'll read verse 16 again. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And there, John enumerates these three hazards to our spiritual well-being. As I pointed out at the beginning, if we were writing this ourselves analytically, we might think that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life pertain more to the flesh than to the devil or the world, because these are all sins of the flesh. They're sins of our corrupt human nature. But this is what John says characterizes the evil world system that we are forbidden to love. These fleshly failures set the agenda for the whole world system. Don't be surprised when you watch the news and everything in the world is going bad. This is why. So let's look at these things one at a time. First, the lust of the flesh. This speaks of fleshly appetites, evil desire. He's speaking about inordinate cravings that begin with simple, normal human needs like hunger and weariness and the sex drive. These are normal human needs, and they are legitimate desires to start with. And in most cases, if you neglect those needs, you will die. But when those desires are corrupted and perverted by sin, they become wicked appetites that destroy us. And just to give you an example, there's nothing wrong with hunger, for example, as long as you remain in control of that desire. But when the desire controls us, normal hunger gives way to the sin of gluttony, and that's a fleshly lust. There's nothing wrong with weariness and the desire for rest. Jesus himself experienced that. But a person who forfeits control of that normal desire becomes lazy and slothful in a sinful way. There's nothing inherently wrong with the sex drive either. Hebrews 13, 34, marriage is held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. But if that desire controls you rather than vice versa, it gives way to all kinds of perverse and evil lusts. All kinds of sins, drunkenness, immorality, any sin that stems from a lack of self-control is ultimately rooted in fleshly lust. Don't love those things, John says. Don't be controlled by those desires. They are incompatible, if they're out of control, lusts, incompatible with true love for God. And next he mentions the lust of the eyes. And here he's talking about the the sin that really I would say has become the hallmark of our generation. Because everywhere you look today, you are bombarded with inducements to succumb to the lust of the eyes. Our perverted society deliberately appeals to the lust of the eyes and tries to inflame this sort of lust in everyone. And there's a whole industry to do it. It's called advertising. You turn on your television and you will be assaulted with things deliberately designed to appeal to the lusts of the eyes. You get on the internet and you face the problem 
multiplied exponentially. Even, even if you unplug from TV and the Internet, you can't drive through Santa Clarita without facing a constant onslaught of billboards containing temptations to lust with the eyes. And this is primarily an appeal to sins of the imagination. If the lust of the flesh is best characterized by out-of-control bodily desires, the lust of the eyes occurs when the imagination is out of control. Jesus said everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Matthew 5.28. And the, the sin he's describing there is a sin that takes place only in the imagination, only in the mind. But that is what John has in mind here when he speaks of the lust of the eyes. And then finally he names the boastful pride of life. This is the arrogance that typifies this world's rulers, the rich, the powerful, the popular people of this world. The ESV says, pride in possessions, and and yes, it's that kind of pride, but it's more than that. The idea here involves any kind of arrogant pride in oneself. You know, people are so proud of whatever worldly advantages or material wealth they manage to attain, and even people with no material possessions cultivate pride in their reputations or pride in their athletic prowess or pride in their self-sufficiency and sometimes even pride in their poverty or pride in their criminality. This is the tendency of all fallen creatures towards self-glorification. It's pride in oneself at the expense of others. John is referring here to the tendency that makes us overly obsessed with how we look or what sort of social status we maintain, and a host of other selfish tendencies, sinful ambition, arrogant boasting. This is the pride that makes a boxer stand over his defeated opponent and taunt him, saying things like, I'm the greatest or I'm the king of the world. It's raw egoism, and our generation has tried to elevate this kind of pride as a virtue, but God calls it a sin. And it's a sin that breeds other sin because pride actually lies at the root of most human strife, hatred, other kinds of wars and fightings, most marital problems. Pride is at the base. This is the very sin that caused Satan's fall. And in fact, I want you to notice that these same three worldly tendencies were all present in the beginning at the fall. This is what brought the human race down. Listen to Genesis 3, verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. That's an appeal to the lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the boastful pride of life. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And thus the human race fell. So these worldly pitfalls, these same three tendencies that John names here, all played a role in the fall of humanity, and they continue to plague us today. You look at any magazine rack, and you will see all of these temptations on display in vivid color. You can't check out at the grocery store without encountering it. The world appeals overtly to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And don't get me started about women's magazines. If if you want to see the very definition of worldliness, there it is. I got stuck standing in a checkout line at an airport once, and I was positioned right next to the women's section of the magazine wall, and it was awful. One magazine had articles on how to talk to anyone who will listen and how to look younger and sexier, appealing to pride. The same magazine had a lead article on amazing lovemaking techniques appealing to the lust of the flesh. And the cover, of course, was carefully designed to appeal to the lust of the eyes. I don't need to tell you that the magazines that target men are even worse. We live in a world that is completely given over to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the sinful pride of life. And that is the heart of the sin of worldliness. We live in a generation when almost nobody's concerned about worldliness anymore. If you've heard that at all in your Christian life, you probably heard it from me, because sometimes it seems like I'm the only one who still worries about that sin anymore. 
And because it troubles me. It troubles me. It tempts me as well. Worldliness. It's not about, this is not a sin that postmodern Christians are typically worried about at all in their zeal to accommodate unchurched people with a message that is seeker-sensitive and user-friendly, and postmodern Christians are determined to portray the mission of the church in this world as a friendly dialogue, a conversation. It's not warfare. And the Bible says it is warfare, and that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I keep coming back to this reality that worldliness is a sin. You ask the typical Christian today to define worldliness, and they'll usually talk about surface issues, smoking and drinking and dancing, going to movies. And, but this verse teaches that real worldliness is a heart that is in love with sensual appetites and sinful imaginations and selfish ego, pride. Worldliness, I would say, is, the peculiar, is a peculiar sin in the church in our generation. And I fear the problem gets worse every time evangelicals fall in love with a new fad that imitates the spirit of this age. The church has become as proud and as lustful as the world, and that is precisely what this verse commands us not to do. So I hope you see the high standard this passage sets for us. We, as believers, must be different from the world if we're going to reach this world for Christ. It's not about accommodating them or making them feel comfortable. It's about showing them the difference between Christ and the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and pride of life. These three sins encompass, Scripture says, all that is in the world. Everything that we have to put off if we're going to be conformed perfectly to the likeness of Christ. And so I ask you, are you aware of that in your day-to-day life? Is your heart set on Christ so that you will not be dragged into sin by too much love for this world? Remember, the world is passing away, and also, also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. May God give us grace to set our minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For we have died, and our lives have been hidden with Christ in God. And we need to live with the hope that when Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then we also will be manifested with Him in glory. That's where we should set our affections. That's where our expectations should be focused. That's what we should love. Let's pray. Father, do give us pure hearts fixed on heaven. Wean us from our fascination with the things of this world. Help us to, to mortify these sins, to put them to death. Take away our love for the perverted values of a fallen world and transform us by the renewing of our minds and our affections. And may we live as we are supposed to, like strangers and pilgrims in a world that is not our home. Fit us for heaven where we truly belong. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.